Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the privilege we have to uh, meet in this manner. And I pray, Lord, that as we discuss this important subject of righteousness by faith, that you would be with us tonight. I pray that you would be with our technology, that thing runs smoothly. And as we discuss and share, may your Holy Spirit guide our thoughts. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, just uh, as we, before we get started, yourselves and names, where you're from, what you do, etc. Um, if we just go around. Hi, everyone. My name is Nyson. I am based in Birmingham, England. Um, before Corona, I guess I was work. I'm an accountant working in internal audits. Now I'm just on fellow doing random stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm Leah. I live in Leicester in England. Um, and I am a client relationship manager for a financial services firm. Hi, everybody. My name is Natasha, but I go by Tash. Uh, I am currently uh, living on the Isle of Man, so I'm part of the Isle of Man SDA Church, so it's a British Isle, and I am a high school student. Okay, thanks for joining us. I was on the Isle of Man, so yeah. those of you watching, uh, back in February, a lovely place, and if anyone ever gets a chance to visit... And we got stuck there actually for an extra day. You but did, yeah. <laughs> it was storms, but it was great and a lovely church as well. Hello, everyone. My name is David Shin, and I'm the pastor of the Hillside O'Malley Church in Anchorage, Alaska, in the United States. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. I know you yeah. said it's what, about five o'clock for you over there, right? Yes, 11, 11 o'clock. Yeah, 11 a.m. 11 a.m. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, as we, we, we're getting into this subject of righteousness by faith, it's something, it's a term that we may, um, maybe people have heard. It's something that we hear from the pulpit that's batted around. Uh, maybe we've had Bible studies on it, but tonight we want to kind of get a little bit deeper into this subject and, and how it relates to us practically today. So I'm going to throw the first question out there. I, you know, they say that he who defines the terms, you know, when you're discussing anything, it's important to define the terms you're talking about. So how would you, um, I'm putting this question out to anyone to pick up, how would you break down the phrase righteousness by faith? Um, anyone want to kind of pick up that, that as we start and we'll kind of go from, go from there. I'll get the ball rolling past there. Um... Well, righteousness. I when I first saw the study was about righteousness by faith tonight. I was like, uh, I look at the words individually first. So, by dictionary definition, I found out that righteousness is something that is morally right, or something that it, uh, has to do with uh, the rightness and correctness of things. But as I looked within the Bible, it always righteousness and perfection in Jesus has always been the string or the umbrella word within the word righteousness. So um, righteousness has the connotations of things that are perfect, things that are correct. Uh, and we can see those things from one person as well. And that's through God and Jesus, I think, is my look on righteousness. Okay. Anyone else want to add to or um, any um, thoughts on the dimension of, the of that phrase? For me, when I was looking at it, I thought about First John chapter 1, verse 9, which says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful um, and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from our righteousness. So that faithful aspect of God is the fact that he's responding to the faith that we show in him. He does something in response. 
And then I saw in that verse two aspects. The first aspect is the forgiveness of our sins. And then the second aspect is the cleansing of our unrighteousness. So in my understanding, righteousness by faith is how God does the cleansing and the forgiving in response to our faith by demonstrating his faithfulness. Um, I think when I was looking into it, so similar to what everyone said, um, an understanding basically that righteousness by faith is belief. So faith in, in a, to a certain extent is belief um, in something. And so it was kind of, it's belief in the gospel. And obviously the gospel is Jesus Christ. So belief in Jesus Christ and the, the belief in the power of the gospel to save and transform essentially. So it's not just that you believe in Jesus as a person or that he existed, but that you believe that through faith in him, it has the power to save you. Um, and on a kind of simpler level, one of the first texts that I thought of was Genesis 15 verses five and six, where it talks about Abram um, and how he believed in God and God counted it to him as righteousness. So it was, as I said, just the idea that believing what God tells you is, is can be counted towards you as righteousness. Hmm. Okay. Um, I th there, there's one quote from Thoughts from Mount of Blessing, uh, page 18, and I can't, uh, yeah, she, she, she defines it in a way by quoting three different texts. I'll just read the quote here. And she says, righteousness is holiness, likeness to God, and God is love, 1 John 4, 16. It is conformity to the law of God, for all thy commandments are righteousness, Psalm 119, 172. And love is the fulfilling of the law, Romans 13, 10. Righteousness is love, and love is the light and the life of God. The righteousness of God is embodied in Christ. We receive righteousness by receiving him. And... There, there's so much in there to unpack. Um, and when she says that righteousness is holiness, this is a, this is a radical idea. Cause mm. like, yeah. And, and that's why you, you need faith. Uh, because when you look at ourselves and you look at the standard, it's, it's an in, impossible standard to reach and you can only reach it by faith and she says we receive righteousness when we receive him meaning meaning christ so there's so many nuances and and, and dimensions of righteousness by faith it's it's a beautiful theme and and i think that the narrative of righteousness by faith can only be understood from the framework of the fall to to the restoration and revelation and that's encompassed through the through the through the lands of the sanctuary, Adam and Eve were in in that state of perfection in Eden. It was lost, and through Christ, righteousness by faith, we are brought back. Mm. What's the yeah? I appreciate that. Like the idea that righteousness is holiness, and we can only attain it by we can only attain it by faith. I think that's a key. That's a key um, aspect. I mean, what would you? What would you say is the opposite? I mean, if you have righteousness, then you have unrighteousness. Or what, is, what are other ways that people kind of seek righteousness that's not, not biblical or is not, not the way we should seek it? If we said by definition that righteousness is kind of um, based on holiness and God's law and right doing, um, then obviously people try to seek it by fulfilling that through their own efforts. 
So by trying to be righteous rather than doing it by faith. So the opposite, I guess we would say, would be salvation by works. So this idea, if we're righteous by faith, um, and you say, well, it's not righteousness by works, but what role do works play or what aspect of works in, in, in the faith? Because as, as Seventh-day Adventists, we don't believe in this concept of a, a once saved, always saved gospel or I've given my life to the Lord and, and that's it. I'm, you know, I, can, I don't have to go back to church necessarily regularly. I can do it, I can do exactly what I want. So how do we, how do we marry this concept of you know, faith and works, et cetera, and, and, and the life I live that we're, we're, we're trying to you know, demonstrate the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, et cetera, and live at peace with all men. And yet that's not what saves us. So how do, you know, how do we kind of marry these concepts together? From my perspective, I can only talk from my perspective as a teenager. Um, in terms of like me as, as a generation or my age, we are a very visual generation. Like we love to see things. Um, we love to have evidence. We love to have proof. We're a very visual generation in the fact that we like to see things to believe things. And um, in terms of work, um, we need to, within us, I think like we're, we're so... Uh, caught up in the idea that you have to do this for it to be real you have to do this for you to obtain it um and in terms of this question i think that um faith and righteousness is something that you obtain by trusting is is faith is is the substance hoped for not seen and in terms of the the contrast between uh my generation or like the things that as us as young people we want to see the things happening in action we have a, I don't know, I think a pit of like doing this, this and that to obtain righteousness, but that's not the whole idea of righteousness by faith. It's, um, it's the things where I think the way that we can marry it is to have the realization that faith is something that you cannot see, that you can, it's a personal thing where you cannot see somebody else's faith. It's within you to do the works because you have faith. It's, you do these works because it's not a, it's not a external thing that you do these works and it's an internal thing because you have that faith to do the external works because you have that, I think. So it just all uh, flows within one another that you cannot have, because my, the way that I look at it is that um, faith without works is there's no room for Christian character development that you cannot develop yourself. You're very stagnant in the way that you think that if you just believe without the works equally with the works it's the two-way street in my view mm. so the, um, the work is what's visible um but it's not okay anyone else leah you guys just going to reference um which um you kind of half quoted um james 2 mm -hmm. um where it talks about faith without works is dead um mm -hmm. so that was kind of the first thing i thought when it, we were looking at well, what role do works play um and it's the idea that obviously faith in christ will lead you to do works so obviously you kind of have two sides of the coin where um some people are very much like well actually i don't need to change because i believe and that's all that's required of me so long as i believe god knows my heart and that's it and it's like well actually in every area of life the things that you believe inform how you behave um you're never going to believe something and then it have no impact on how you live your life so if truly you do have faith in christ and if truly you've accepted his salvation that acceptance will lead you to be different and to act differently and that's how your works are demonstrated and it's very clear through scripture that works are important because in the gospels so many times jesus references the fruit 
of what people produce. There are so many parables about the fruit mm -hmm. on um, different trees. And Jesus said, it's not producing any fruit. So clearly he expects something to happen as a result of you experiencing faith. It's not just that it happens and then that's it. Um, and so also again, um, we mentioned the fruit of the spirit. So again, what is, why would there be the fruit of the spirit if we weren't expected to, to behave a certain way? And the fruits of the spirit are character traits. They're mm. not other things. So clearly it's supposed to be manifest in our character in certain ways. So clearly works do have a role to play. It's just that they're not the means by which we're saved. And I think maybe just bouncing up on that as well, and something that David said earlier is the fact that this idea of righteousness by faith, you understand it through basically the sin problem, because that's what Jesus is trying to save us from. And I think one of the things that happens, at least to me, in my experience, when you start to understand the gospel and the cross better, um, one of the things that becomes really clear is that sin is an enemy to God, because it was precisely because of the existence of sin that Jesus has to die on the cross. And one of the things that happened in the Garden of Eden, Jesus says that he was going to put enmity, and I think between us and Satan. So the more we come to understand God, the more we come to see what sin, what he had to go through because of sin, it creates this, um, this desire to change and to become more Christ-like and to live those things that we know had God. You know, Paul talks about crucifying Jesus afresh again. And so I think in another dimension, the, the works become almost like a response or to our deeper understanding of what holiness is, but also a deeper understanding of what unholiness has made Christ go through. We realize that sin is the enemy, so therefore we no longer desire to do it. And Jesus is trying to save us from our sins. So we try to, to head to become more like Christ because righteousness becomes more attractive and sin becomes more, um, more revolting in a sense. So that's how the change happens. Is that the motivation of the change as well? Rather than it being, I want God to look at me favorably because I'm doing X, Y, and Z, but it's just this natural separation between righteousness and holiness that makes us tend towards God rather than sin. You know, the, the faith and works uh, dialogue has been going on you know, basically since, since the Reformation obviously in Protestantism. And it's interesting because in Luther's 1522 translation of the New Testament, in his introduction, he says that the book of James is an mm. epistle of straw and not on the same plane as like Roman. So you can see Luther, who is at the very heart of the Reformation, has a certain perspective of works, okay? And, and so, so much so that he, he has an issue with, with James because James comes up very strongly on, on the, the nature of works and its relationship to our Christian experience. But, but when we talk about righteousness by faith, the, the classical Protestant evangelical perspective is is very very different from from the adventist perspective when it comes to the perspective mm -hmm. of works okay and and on a on a on a on a superficial cliche-ish level it may seem similar but when you ground it down to the the nature of of the theological underpinnings of where they're coming from, they are like fundamentally different. And it really comes out in the dialogue between Erasmus and Luther. And 
it really come down to whether works had merit and, and, and whether our faith had merit. And Erasmus said that our faith or our choice had little merit. He was a Catholic. So when you choose God, when you have faith, it has little merit before God. And Luther, obviously, on the other side of the spectrum, was saying absolutely no merit. And the way that he came to that conclusion was by saying that God chooses, basically predestination, which Calvin systematized. So you have these two tensions on one side. You have Catholicism, which says that we have little merit, our contribution in a little way earns our salvation. And then on the other side, Luther says, absolutely not. We have no part to play. Matter of fact, God chooses for us. And that's how he, he gets to righteousness by faith. And the question is, what's the biblical perspective? And it really came from an understanding of, of what is called prevenient grace and Wesley, where he said that the, the will is vivified by God. So or even our ability to have choice and faith is from God. And then we, when we exercise it, it's, you know, we're using faith, but we don't get any credit for it. And, and so I think, I think in Adventist circles, we, we kind of swing between two ends of the spectrum in, in trying to, to go between legalism on one end. And then the other side is, is basically, you know, that, that works and Christian standards have no role in the Christian experience. And I think so many times we live a biographical uh, or experiential theology more than a biblical theology. And if you look at the last 2000 years of Christian history, it's reactionary, purely reactionary from one end of the spectrum to another. And I think works in Adventism, when you get up today in a, in a given congregation and and read a few passages from James, I can visibly see the blood pressure raising for a certain generation of Adventists that have been burned by legalism. And they swing the pendulum, I believe, in the other direction, you know, and, and it, and it kind of goes back and back and forth experientially, even in our own uh, community. Mm -hmm. It's true. It's true. Um, that finding that balance is, is key. And I think you're right, depending sometimes on Adventism, what, which generation people come from and how Adventism has been taught to them. It, it does play a role in how they, how they, how they, um, how they, uh, how they've received it. So a question, maybe a, a practical question, and that would be yeah, maybe asking you guys, how, how do we and to use some biblical text, uh, maybe as well. How do we experience something by faith? How do we, yeah, how do we get something by faith? If we just faith? mention something, Adam. Oh, sure, um, go ahead. Yeah, it was just to slightly come off the back of what David said earlier. Um, okay, yeah. So sorry to jump back. But all I was going to add was, um, and what you were saying about the pendulum and how you've experienced it, um, depending on what, if you were stung by legalism, then you can swing the other way. I think there's something really massively important about that because I know in my own personal experience, um, growing up Adventist um, and having kind of both sides of the coin, um, we get taught a lot of doctrinal stuff. So again, if you're kind of have doctrines run down your throat from a legalistic perspective, in terms of just information, it sometimes can be very dry, but when you look at it from the perspective of obviously that doctrine is there to teach us about the character of Christ, for people who don't necessarily accept the, the full kind of message of righteousness by faith and sanctification, they miss such a massive part of something about the character of Christ. Because if you believe in righteousness by faith as it's taught in scripture, that means that God has the power to completely transform your life, which is massive. And when I kind of realized that for myself, it really changed 
my faith in God because I think a lot of people believe that God can't really change you like he'll make you a bit better than you were um, mm. and you'll always be slightly better than you started out but that's as much as he can do whereas righteousness by faith teaches us that God can completely transform us and if we serve a God who is like that who has the power to change us and we know how evil and sinful we are and we know how much of a mess we're in and then we imagine that God can totally change us from that that's that's a completely different God to the kind of God a lot of people are worshipping because the God that they worship he's very forgiving but he can't do much more than that do you see what I mean so I think it's really important that we grasp righteousness by faith in its full truth um, and don't just kind of shove it out as we don't want to talk about works because we're sick of that actually if God can change your works through righteousness by faith that is that is massive that's super important um, and it's really encouraging as well so sorry to backtrack but I just wanted to add that in no, that's, that's good. You know, if you guys want to ask questions to each other as we go along, that's cool. Oh, experiencing something by faith. Yeah. Um, yeah. How does faith work? Nice. And I'm going to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I was just thinking of like some of the examples that I've read before in the past. And um, one thing that I found interesting was I was going back to the time when I was in school, you know, and, and you go to school and you first learn one plus one equals two. And two plus two equals four. And you just sort of like take that as gospel. And I've used it in my life since in many different things from, you know, buying stuff to work, but it just came from the simple statement that I was told when I was younger. And for a long time, I never really actually bothered to go back and understand why that was. I just took it as faith. I just took it really as, as a fact. And I think sometimes we, we, when it comes to the things of God, you know, Paul talks in first Corinthians chapter one about how God chooses the foolish things you know, to confine the, the you know, the, the wise. And I think sometimes the things that God says in his word, they are countercultural or they go against the grain of our experience or maybe our expectations as human beings. Even this idea of grace, that you should receive something without having to do anything for it, or the idea of forgiveness, that when I sin against God, he can still forgive me rather than hold a grudge. It just goes against my experience. And so I am tempted to discard it or I'm tempted to question it because I can't relate to it as a human being. And I think the idea of experiencing something by faith, I think it comes with maybe on one aspect, surrendering our preconceived ideas because we often tend to question what God says in his word because we can't see how that can be true. And so therefore we think it can't be true and then we fail to experience it. So it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think one aspect that I found important in my experience is not questioning what God says based on what I think is possible, but based on an understanding of what he's promising. I think, um, so in terms of experiencing stuff by faith, we often use the expression stepping out in faith. Um, and I think the reason that we do that is because often to experience things in faith, you have to do it gradually, which is kind of the whole point. So as Christians, we, um, we uh how can i put this so we will um believe we may read something that god says and we will say okay i'm going to try try and see if i can take him at his word and then when we step out in faith in that area god shows to us that actually we were right to put our faith in him and so the next time we take a bigger step or we step even further out and so the christian journey is essentially just you constantly taking god at his word taking god at his word and then the more that you do that is the more that you know that you can do that in the future and theoretically, the way it should work is that you take a step of faith in the small. And then as you trust him in the smaller things, gradually you learn that you can trust him in the bigger things. Um, I say theoretically, that's how it's supposed to work, because scripture is full of people who God 
took them on massive journeys and then they were still back to square one again the next day because they forgot how he led them but so experiencing by faith is literally day by day step by step believing what god says to you and allowing that to inform how you live your life and allowing that to change your life and that is how it should work i believe yeah exactly when i first read that question i was like oh experiences in my 15 years let's see <laughs> but um and when i first read that question i was like um I feel like the choices that I make because of my faith and the, the everyday things that I decide to do and the everyday things that I do do is because I decide to do them through the faith that I have, that um, simply living uh, my life through gradually and um, develop my faith is the experience that I have. I, um, I can only talk through uh, the things that I have experienced. I can only talk through the things that I have seen and done. And in terms of that question, I was like living my life with the, with the wanting to do better, to exercise my faith each day, is that's my experience though, um, as a teen personally, um, I can only answer that question through my experience. And my experience mm -hmm. is something that I, the choices that I make and the things that I do because of my faith is my experience with that question. So that's fine. Okay. Um, when we when we look at when we look at faith and uh, um, following up on what Leah indicated about faith in His Word, uh, you know, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The reason we can believe in righteousness by faith is because of what we read in God's Word. That that's why we believe in the existence of righteousness by faith. And the reason we can believe in God's Word is based on. It's based on the person behind the word. If someone tells me something, the reason I can have faith that the person is going to follow through is because of the person behind the words. And it's, it's based on two elements uh, of, of God. It's his character. Okay. When God tells you something, there's character behind it. And then also is capability. And, and those two are, are intertwined with each other. If someone tells me, that they're going to do something. Um, first, I look at the character, and then I look at the cap capability. In other words, someone's character can be gold, but if they're incompetent, then I'm not going to have faith in their word. And those two go go together: character and 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 capability. So when God tells us something based on His character and capability, we we have faith in His in His hmm. word, and and the experience of faith, okay, is so grounded in that word that regardless of the way that I may feel or not feel, my faith in the word, based on the character and capability of the person that told me that, in this case, God, remains steadfast, regardless of the way that I may feel or not feel. The reality is, you may not feel righteous <laughs> at all, um, but you believe it regardless of the way that you feel, because God said it and promised it in his word. And that, that's the experience of righteousness by faith. It's not always coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration and like, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I've just come down from glory and I feel justified. I'm being sanctified and one day I will be glorified. You know, you have days like that, okay? But it's not like that all the time. Some days you get up and you're like, woe is me. Like, I'm a sinner, like I'm never going to be saved. I don't know, I got issues in my life. And especially if you look at yourself, introspection and so forth, you feel lost, but you read, you read the word, 
Okay, First John 1, 9, uh, if we confess, he's faithful. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from wrong and righteous. And I praise God, it's, it's there. And also Jude 24, now unto him that is able to keep us from falling. And you believe that by grace, through faith in Jesus. And, and that experience is, is not always a euphoria of feeling. Feelings come, feelings go. But, but our faith in the word remains steadfast. And so, you know, you even see in the example of Jesus, he didn't always feel um, in Gethsemane, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that, that, that's where faith, <laughs> that's, 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 I mean, that's, that's, the, that, that's an experience of faith too. Um, Abraham taking Isaac up to Mount Moriah. Talk about three days of agony. That's an experience of faith too, but he believed the promise. All right. And, and there's going to be those valleys in our experience as well. And the, and, and the thing that keeps us, keeps us even is, is our faith in the word because of the character and capability of the person behind the words. Mm. Yeah, appreciate you bringing that up because we did talk about faith and works. And I, I think that's a key dimension that you brought up there, the faith and feeling. Um, that we often struggle with um, how we feel and yet holding on to the promises of God and, and trusting trusting the promise over over our feeling. And I think that's that's a key thing that we, you know, we, we, we believe and we have faith in the word of God over what we may feel in the moment. Um, but I think, yeah. Uh, yeah, because I, I think to our generation, you know, the, we're, we're all about experience. Mm. That's, that's huge. Okay. For, for, for our generation and, um, you know, righteousness by faith, the experience of righteousness by faith is not, um, it's not always this experience of coming down from, from glory uh, in, mm. a, in an emotional sense, in an emotional sense. And, and so the challenge to our generation is like to, to trust in God when our emotions are going all over the place and, 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 and to recognize that, hey, my experiential emotion may not always be, be, be on this plane of, of where I'd, I always mm-hmm. want it to be, but, but my, my steadfast continual experience and dependence on God's word can be, can be, can be even because of, because of, because of this, you know, because of this. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the ultimate challenge of our generation is, is to depend on God's word, even though we don't feel it all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this kind of pivots us into our next question about, you know, the trusting God's word when we don't feel it. And there's a concept that's, I guess, people talk about this word in society, and you know, even you know, even talk about it in in, in church circles as well. And that's the idea of of blind faith. Um, how 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 would you explain a concept of blind faith? Is there such a thing? <laughs> is it true or is it false? Any? Uh, I would say, in terms of blind faith. I think what people describe as being blind faith, because by definition, obviously faith is kind of believing in, in what you can't necessarily see or prove. Um, so I can't see how 
somebody can justify blind faith because my question would then be, well, what is it that makes you believe in this thing? If you've got no evidence, because most of what we believe in, we have evidence to support why we believe it. So even if we can't directly prove the thing we believe in, we've got some evidence kind of around it. So for example, when I sit on a chair, because I've sat on other chairs and I know that I've been held up by a chair before, I believe that that chair is also going to be fine. So, I mean, you never just kind of jump into something without any evidence that it, it will work. Um, and so I think as Christians, we are never asked to, to um, what's the word? We're never asked to, um, to demonstrate blind faith because there is examples constantly throughout scripture of those who've gone before us. So even, um, even, well, with Adam and Eve, for example, obviously they didn't have an example of like an, someone else, a human before them that they could kind of refer to, but they talked with God, they knew him personally. And so any faith that they um, demonstrated in God was based on relationship, like they already had evidence to go off. Um, and so I think as Christians, we're not asked to demonstrate blind faith. Um, and I'm glad for that. Um, sometimes people say, oh, you have to believe so much in order to be a Christian and you've got very little to prove it. And it's like, well, actually we've got so much evidence in scripture and also God gives us the opportunity in our own lives to test him. So he doesn't ask us to believe him without us, without saying to us, try me and see. And through living your life with me, I will show you that you can trust me. Um, and so personally, I think obviously people say that there's a concept of blind faith, but I just think people who, who believe things blindly are not being wise. It, it doesn't make sense to mm. me that people would do that. And I think going back to another scripture that we mentioned before, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. And so here you have a clear connection between the word of God and the experience of having faith. In, in, in a sense, I guess we can say genuine faith is believing in something that God has promised or believing in something that God has stated. When God hasn't stated something or when God hasn't promised something and we still believe it, then that becomes blind because it's not backed up by any promise of God. Um, but then it's also true that it is possible to have blind faith. In my mind, I look at blind faith also as presumption. I'd look at them, they're very connected because mm -hmm. sometimes we believe something in God's word whilst ignoring something else that is in God's word. Um, because I was just reading something from the Isaiah of Ages and it talks about how um, faith claims God's promise and brings forth fruits in obedience. Presumption also claims the promises, but uses them as Satan did to excuse transgression. So sometimes it is possible to always claim the promises about forgiveness, but then you ignore everything else, you know, the different injunctions. So then this can also become a form of blind faith because we basically selectively read the word of God. And so there's a danger there that when we are looking to use the Bible as the barometer of our experience, we should look at what the Bible says as a whole, not just simply cherry picking the bits that we like. Hmm. Appreciate that. That's good. Um, blind faith, blind faith. Um, another question that that comes to mind is: Is it we're talking about faith as as a Christian, faith you know, as Seventh Adventist, and faith in God's Word, and faith you know, as it relates to our you know forgiveness, confession, as it relates to our experience. But is it possible to have faith without being a believer in God? Like you know, I remember going to school and they talked about the illustration of you got faith in the chair or you got faith in the light switch that will come on or, or that, you know, they use these random illustrations. 
is it possible for someone who's not a believer to have faith? Um, and if so, what kind of faith is that? Or if, if not, then, then why not? I think it maybe goes back to something that was said before as well, in that ultimately faith is a choice. And um, I think whether we're believers or we're not believers, we choose to believe, you know, whether we believe in God, there is a certain um, value, a certain statement that we choose to say this is true and this is not true. Um, I think when we talk about is it possible for someone who is not a believer to have faith? Part of me thinks if somebody is not a believer, then they have not chosen to exercise faith in God. So in that sense, they don't have the faith, but they still always have the capacity to choose to believe. Um, I was thinking maybe, for example, somebody like Rahab, you know, when the 12 spies went into Jericho. At that point, she wasn't a believer, but then she talks about how she had heard everything that God had done in Egypt and what he had done for the children of Israel. And she chose to believe that when they came, they would win because God was on their side. And so she was saved, but everyone else was lost because they chose to believe that they would still be fine. So I think faith is available to everybody, but until it is exercised, you can't really say that somebody is has faith because you always have the capacity to choose. But until it is exercised, it's almost like it lies dormant. But we always have the option to have faith because it's a choice. Hmm. Hmm. I think I would have said, again, based on the definition of the idea of faith being um, believing in God um, in terms of what he says and what he promises and the things that he says to you, I kind of understand it as you can you believe in what you know. So to me, I would say that you don't have to be a believer in the sense of how we understand believer. Um, but so long as you believe that which you know, God will usually lead you further and further. So, um, which again, nice and just said about the example of Rahab. So to me, I would have said she became a believer because the little that she did know, she trusted God in, if that makes any sense. Um, she didn't know God herself, but she knew people who knew God and she believed what they were saying. And then that led her to know God himself. Um, so I think it's important, as I said, that as people know certain things, if they accept that, then God will lead them further on. And the same is true in our Christian journeys, because we're told, that God will reveal further truth to us, but he won't necessarily do it if we don't accept the truth we've already got. So I think in everybody's journey with God, he takes you um, to a certain point. And when you accept where you, that what he's shown you already, then he takes you further and further and further still. Um, so I believe that you can have faith to a certain extent without knowing God, but I believe that eventually if you do act on that, it will lead you to belief in God. Hmm. Oh, there's, a, there's a fascinating statement in Hebrews eleven six, and I actually like this one in the New International Version. Um, Paul says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Um, New King James says that he is. So there's so many times in my own experience when I've had to go back to that and I, I have an experience where I need faith and I have to ask myself, hey, in, in the end, do I really believe that God exists? And and because sometimes um, I tell my, my parishioners, I say sometimes, you know, we're, we're, we're a Christian, we're a theist on Sabbath, then, then on Monday morning when we open our checkbook, we become atheists. 
You know, we operate like we don't believe in God and, and that God doesn't exist when it comes to our finances. So, so the, mm -hmm. ground of, the ground of biblical faith, okay, comes from, comes from a basic understanding that number one, God exists, and number two, the character and capability of that, uh, uh, of the existence of, of that God. And, uh, you know, like, like Leah indicated, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that we're progressed in our experience or knowledge, you know, that's, that's all dynamic, but, uh, but the, at the very basic, it's, it's a basic understanding of God's existence and, and his character. And even our understanding of God's character may be, may be flawed. Okay. But, but God works with us and he takes us where we're at. But the beauty of it is when we exercise what we have, then that faith grows and our experience grows. Hmm. I think there's a beauty of faith. Like the Bible says, every man's been given a, a measure of faith. And, you know, we all have that measure of faith. And yet um, it's something that can grow or we can just kind of, you know, not it, it, it could remain stagnant or dormant, so to speak. Um, maybe I should have asked this question earlier. Um, I don't want to open a can of worms per se. I know, David, you, you, you spoke earlier about the, the fact that as a as a as a, a Christian community, we've struggled with this issue of faith and works and righteousness since the Reformation. You quoted, um, you know, you didn't quote, but you referenced Luther and Erasmus and, and some of the, and then Wesley and some of the challenges that, that they've had that probably have seeped their way into, into Adventism. And I know there's no way we can do the whole topic justice because as a church, we've written volumes and volumes on this subject. And, uh, and we still maybe haven't resolved it in a in a suitable fashion. But there is a date sometimes when you're discussing righteousness by faith in Adventist circles that comes up, and that's the date of 1888. And we have the church prior to that day and the church after that day. What impact did it have? Um, I'm going to ask you, uh, Dave, uh, David Chin, if you'd mind just giving a brief synopsis maybe as to what, what some of the issues were there or what did we miss in 1888 that was grasped later or maybe just how that, that whole date plays into this, 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 um, this discussion. 1888. Okay, the, the Adventist church began with a eschatological emphasis in 1844 with the notion that using the sanctuary hermeneutic that Jesus moved into the final phase called the investigative judgment. And that was an emphasis on the, on the most holy place experience, uh, you know, the experience that Jesus is, is going through the, the final records in heaven, beginning with the dead to the living and the close of probation and all, all those notions that went along with that. The fascinating thing is that in 1888, following that eschatological beginning in 1888, the the church the church experience had shifted to if you, if you look at the sanctuary model there was such an emphasis on the holy place and most holy place that that experientially the courtyard and justification was was believed but not experienced and then jones and wagner in minneapolis made an emphasis on righteousness by faith, and 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 the rub really was this idea of merit that that there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation, and the, there was a there was a split uh, between the old guard and these two young whippersnappers, Jones and Wagner, uh, on this idea of righteousness by faith, and Ellen White backed uh, Jones and Wagner. 
Now, since 1888, there has been a lot of reflection going on and quite frankly, some revisionist history in some circles about what happened in 1888 and so forth. And then you have, you have QOD. And I don't want to open up that whole can of worms, but 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 QOD in 1957 was was another monumental day in which we had to take another look at the gospel and so forth. And then there was a reaction to that on, on either side and so forth. And and we are where we are today. And 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 in reality, in reality, the way that I would I would summarize the the hinge of where the current dialogue is on righteousness by faith is 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 I think that. Essentially, we have settled, for the most part, the idea of merit. I don't think that's a that's a common issue today in 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 mainline Adventist circles. Like it's it's pretty well commonly believed that we cannot earn our salvation. Mm. The the you know it, it's not. I mean, look, the issue today is not legalism. You know, I, we have little pockets here and there, but but look, we're not living during during the 1950s right now okay it's 2020 the issue today is secularism that mm. that's that's the issue okay that that's the, that's the issue today and, and and really the 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 dynamic the dynamic issue when it comes to righteousness by faith is is not the question of what by faith is okay but really the definition of what righteousness encompasses whether mm. righteousness encompasses the imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness, okay, both of them, and they're both by faith. And in some circles, you'll find an emphasis on the imputed, that it's justification alone, and that's it. In other words, just the courtyard. In other circles, it'll be, you know, the, the holy place, and that's a minority, I, I think, is the holy place, is, is, is that it's the imputed righteousness. And I'm of the opinion, okay, and the perspective that, look, we need to we need to incorporate the whole sanctuary. In other words, righteousness includes the imputed and the imparted righteousness. And I think that's where the current dialogue today is post-1888. It's, it's the relationship between imputed and imparted. And in some circles, you talk about imparted, they said, no, that's legalism. That's works. That's mm. righteousness by works. So you, you know, you can't talk about the imparted righteousness and sanctification. You know, there, it's like an allergic reaction to it. And so I think, I think right now, if I'm, if I'm looking at the trajectory of Adventist theological reactions to this point, we're in a point right now where our experience and and Fernando Canali wrote a fascinating uh, thing in Adventist, in the Adventist Theological Society. He says that the experience of Adventism today is an evangelical experience. He said, not theological thinking, but an evangelical experience, which will frame our evangelical, which will frame our, our theology. And he says, and evangelicalism is headed back toward Catholicism. So, so, so in reality, what he's saying hmm. is that right now, we are at a point where our experience has become evangelical. Now, what does that mean? In other words, our experience is camped out in the courtyard. Hmm. That, that, that's what's happening. And there's a minimizing or total neglect or regard, disregard of, of the daily abiding holy place experience between the candlestick, the showbread, and, and, and the altar of incense. That, that is missing from the experience of, of Adventism, according to Canali. Hmm. Adam, Thank you. Can I um, yeah, go ahead. just make a point? It's, 
So this is more of an experiential point off the back of what David just said, mm -hmm. um, not touching on 1888, but I, um, I thought it was interesting what you commented on because in terms of, from my own experience growing up, I know that I really struggled with this issue when I was younger, largely because I know that you said it's not so much an issue now in terms of legalism, et cetera, et cetera, and be, that being taught as a message of the church, but that is actually what I kind of, not fully legalism, like I was always told that righteousness um, was through accepting um, through accepting Jesus and justification by faith. But I think the problem is people will say that with their mouths, but then at the same time they then slip into, but then you've got to do something else as well. And so what I often found growing up is that people were very big on righteousness by works, but in the form of almost trying to get rid of every temptation to sin. So it was kind of in the form of, um, basically you've got to get rid of everything that might make you sin um, and then the more stuff you kind of have got rid of the more holy you'll be because you just don't have any opportunity to sin if that makes sense and that manifested itself in a lot of ways and so um, it took me a long time to kind of figure out and I would often feel guilt over doing certain things and I wasn't quite clear why I felt guilty about them and it was because I was kind of thinking well this might make me sin um, and it's not that it's bad it's just I've kind of been taught that maybe this is wrong or maybe that's wrong because of different degrees of levels of what people think is okay or what's not okay and so I think it can be very easy as a Christian to think I just need to as I said to kind of surround myself with as much holiness as possible in the hopes that that will prevent me from sinning I just won't have the opportunity to do it because there'll be no temptations there um, and I think it was over time that I started to realize righteousness by faith really is about trusting in God to change you rather than you trying to change yourself by making it too hard for you to sin but as I said, I think a lot of Adventists are still in that area. And one of the things that I used to have um, quoted to me a lot as a child, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, I say, shun the appearance of evil. So it's kind of like, just avoid anything that could remotely suggest that you're doing something that's wrong. But then, as I said, what that leads you to is almost a legalism in itself, because you're constantly trying to avoid looking like you're sinning. But you're never actually thinking about what's going on in my heart. What is my character like? So long as I look like I'm not sinning, then I'm on the right track. Um, and I think there is a lot of that inherent in our churches where people come to church every Sabbath and they're very concerned about looking like they're not sinning. They're not so bothered about whether or not there's actually sin in their heart. As long as no one can see it, they're actually kind of okay with that, which is, that's not the message of righteousness by faith at all. Um, so I think we do still struggle with it. I think it's that we are, we like to pretend that we don't know. We like to pretend that we've kind of 1888's come, we get it now, we're there and yet still we're struggling with relinquishing the control that we like to have over our lives and trying to manage our salvation ourselves. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you know, Desire of Ages indicates that, that the idea that we can merit <clears throat> salvation it lies at the heart of every false religion. So, so I, think that, I think that everyone struggles with this idea of merit. And, uh, you know, perhaps I should should have clarified when I said legalism, not the issue. What, what I should have said was that, was that what is being preached from the pulpits, okay, and what is being preached from the pulpits and what is being promoted in, in, in mainstream Adventism today is, is not, is not was preached in the 1950s, 60s, and even 70s as far as, as far as you know, the emphasis on standards and Christian works and, and things like that. It, it's, it's become a lot more, um, you know, 
uh, I'll just say it, it's become a lot more evangelical. Okay, it, it has become a lot more evangelical. And, 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 and I think that deep down inside, everyone struggles with this idea of merit experientially. You know, just like Adam and Eve in Eden, um, right after sin, they felt shame, and then they try to cover themselves with fig leaves. I think that's the natural reaction of everyone. You know, that's that's legalism. You know, trying to cover, and then God covered them with, 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 with skins representing His righteousness. And I think that, I think that the the issue we're facing today is we we've we struggle with legalism. And then we are reading books about the Bible rather than the Bible. And so then we come to a gospel that really doesn't take care of the issue. <laughs> you know, and I'm speaking very straight here, I'll probably get in trouble. What, you know, but, but that, that, that's, that's where we're facing. And so our experience in that sense has 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 become has become very evangelical where individuals are like hey they you know we all wrestle at the very root with legalism but then when it comes out it's like it's almost like hey i'm just going to throw up my hands and say hey i'm saved and it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what i do or it doesn't matter because mm. these things are not meritorious and so that that experience is I mean, he's being played out on a very local level, just just all across our community of faith. And, you know, it's, mm. yeah, I mean, it's, I do like the point you brought yeah, up. Yeah. Uh, I think I think we struggle with the the merit issue. And I think it, it, it's it, it does, depending on the generation of Adventism, it is something that is a that is a deep struggle. But I think that that, that the point you made earlier is about the 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 challenge with secularism is a key thing in, and what that makes righteousness look like. And that's been redefined, you know, by whoever wants. I mean, you live in a world where everything's right in your own, in, in your own eyes. So, you know, what is righteousness and, and, and how, how do you define, define that is, is, a, is a struggle as well today. And I was just thinking as well, going back to that point in terms of like definition of righteousness, like what David was mentioning is that sometimes we use maybe books about the Bible or we use culture to experience what certain things look like. And this is why secularism then ends up having such a big impact. I think the other thing is, well, at least from my personal experience that I found that can create a struggle is the fact that when you start to read the Bible and to see, understand, at least when I started reading the Bible and understanding what it says, I could see this whole idea of forgiveness on one side. But then when he also came to understanding more about what God requires in terms of like the law and, you know, the character of God, I could also then see the fact that when I compared myself to that, I wasn't what Jesus was like. And so sometimes the issue that also plays into it is this issue of assurance, because I'm thinking, how can I still have this assurance of salvation when I realize that I'm not quite where I should be yet? And so we, we struggle with this. And maybe sometimes we just say, you know, it doesn't matter. We push it to one side. But one, one quote that I found that was really, really useful, and I'm just going to like read a part of it. Anyway, it's taken from Faith and Works. It's page 50, paragraph one. And it says that when it is in the heart to obey God, when efforts are put forth to this end, Jesus accepts this disposition and effort as man's best service. And he makes up for the deficiency with his own merit. 
um, but he will not accept those who claim to have faith in him and yet are disloyal to his father's commandments. And so is this interaction between how Jesus is always there to make up whatever deficiency and he's always the one who is our assurance, but then our heart, we have this disposition to want to obey. And so it's this idea of how it's never then about merit, but it's about understanding how Jesus can still be our sufficiency whilst we're still trying to live up to the ideals that we know. And I think sometimes experiencing that also causes a problem, that interaction mm. in terms of, I know that Jesus saves me, but I also know that he requires us to walk in certain works that he has created in us. And it's understanding that we're never left alone. Whatever our best is, we give that. And Jesus will always have to give the rest because we are never going to be perfect in and of ourselves. Mm. But we should still be striving, like what Paul says, for that mm. ideal. I think as well, one of the difficulties that we have is that human beings naturally don't like to surrender control. And righteousness by faith is all about surrender because the whole point is we can't do it. Um, and so I know that, again, I think that's a big reason why legalism is, is there because people feel that that's a way for them to take back control of their own salvation. It's in my hands. And so long as I try my hardest, I can kind of work my way to heaven. But righteousness by faith is surrender. You are relying completely on God to do that working you and obviously there are certain things that you do in terms of um to maintain your relationship with him to allow him to do that work in you but how god chooses to kind of lead you on that path of developing your character and transforming you into his likeness is down to him it's not up to you um and so i think that's why a lot of people fall into legalism because it's kind of a double-edged sword in the sense that it's it makes you feel like you're in control and you feel like you're the one that's working towards your salvation but on the other side you can't ever be happy because you're constantly striving towards an unattainable goal. Um, and so I think it keeps people trapped because they're constantly trying to achieve something that they can't. And so you just keep getting discouraged. Um, but it, it does make sense in, as I said, in, in terms of human nature, because we're constantly fighting against ourselves in terms of surrendering everything to God. And I think that's why we find it so hard to, um, to accept righteousness by faith, um, because it just goes against everything we want to do in terms of surrendering fully to him. And that's a good point. I wanted to kind of pivot onto our next question. Probably um, wanted to end on something practical. And you brought up the point about surrender, which is a key point. And so I wanted to ask the question, what are some for our listeners and, you know, those who will watch it later on, what are some practical steps um, that one can follow to experience a living faith? Um, faith is something that's vibrant. It's alive. So what are some practical things that we can follow in our own lives to experience a, a real and a living faith? I think for me, and it probably bounces off what Leah was saying, but also something that David said earlier as well, is that one of the most important aspects, at least I've found in my experience, is this idea of um, ability, but also character. You know, it's easy to trust in somebody who is able, but also willing. And I think sometimes, the, the, the difficulty is based on our understanding of God's character because when you look at the Bible for example we talk about Abraham how he believed in God and God accounted him for, for righteousness one of the things that I am um, in Genesis 18 and also Isaiah 41 brings out is the fact that Abraham was a friend of God and it's also this idea of how do we view God do I view God as if he's on my side or do I view God as if he's just there to mark me down whenever I make a mistake and also can I trust in him to be there for me when I need him to be there for me, whether it's to do with spirituality or to do with practical things. So I think when I read the Bible and I read more about the gospel and the sacrifices that God made, it makes me realize that, you know, like Paul says, he says that he will not, he will freely give us all things essentially because he did not withhold his son. 
And so it changes our idea of who God is when we know that God is on our side and is willing to give all heaven for us to be able to be where we need to be, whether it's for things in this life or things in eternal life, it makes it so much easier to trust in him because we know that he's desiring our best. So this idea of seeing God as a friend, I think helps to grow faith as well. Hmm. Um, I would say two super practical things um, that in my experience, the first one is claiming and praying, praying the promises of God from scripture. Um, so again, we've talked about the idea of believing in God um, and Abram believing in God and it encountered him as righteousness. And obviously he believed a promise that God gave him. Um, and so personally for me, um, as I said, I will regularly read and pray God's promises. Um, one of my favorite ones is um, Philippians 1 verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of his appearing. Um, I claim that promise so much in terms of righteousness by faith, because when I think about myself, I'm like, there's no way that God can do this. I can't see how he's going to make me like him, but he promised. And so I claim it. Um, and the second thing that I was going to say is I think um, in terms of claiming God's promises through prayer, we talked about obviously the fact that you um, righteousness by faith is a process and it's often working against your, your um, human character, your sinful flesh. Um, and so I often ask God for things and claim God's promises whilst recognizing that I don't necessarily at that stage want him to answer my prayer, if that makes any sense. So sometimes mm -hmm. you will pray to God to do something and you actually don't want him to do it. And I think sometimes as Christians, we try to pretend like we do. I just tell God, I don't like, I'm like, I'm praying for this because I know that I should pray for this. I want you to do this in my life, but I don't want you to do it. I actually don't want you to do it. So I need you to do it and also make me want you to do this in my life all of this is part of the process and I need your help um, because we often know with our minds what the right thing is but our spirit our, our flesh is like now nah, I don't want this actually um, and that's all part of the journey of growing through righteousness by faith that God actually brings it that you know what's right and you actually want to do what's right and you do it that's the end result um, so I think if you are praying to God for certain things and you kind of feel like I actually don't want this I don't want him to do this don't be discouraged that's that's all part of the process and we should all be asking God to change our desires and our wants not just our behavior mm, appreciate that I think maybe just like adding one more point to okay. um Leah as well is the fact that um I, I was just reading this one letter as I was thinking about this question um, it's letter number 97 from 1895, but it says, do not think that because you have made mistakes, you must always be under condemnation, for this is not necessary. And then it says, do not permit the truth to be depreciated before your mind, because those who profess it do not live consistent lives. I think one thing that sometimes takes away our faith is because we look too much at our own failures from the past. And because we look at all of this, we become less and less confident that God can accept us, like the prodigal son when he was in the pigsty. He had to come to a point where he realized that he could still go to his father. So I think sometimes when we dwell too much on our past mistakes, then this can take away our faith. Equally, when we dwell too much on the mistakes of other people, then we can sometimes become distracted and become discouraged. So it's about trying to make sure that we always look at the cross and realizing that there is always salvation and forgiveness there as well. Okay. Anyone else have any points I want to share? Natasha or David? Uh, yeah, just to add, um, I, th uh, I think Paul, was it that he said uh, you have to die daily 
that you need to surrender yourself daily. And um, we have we always have the analogy or illustration that faith is a muscle, that faith is a living thing. It's something that you need to work on. And um, I feel like uh, considering that analogy, faith, if faith is a muscle that we need to feed it, uh, that we need to give it water, that we need to exercise it each and every day. Um, and in terms of like dying daily, it's the realization that we cannot go on without faith. And it's the realization that although we cannot see faith, it is, we can, we can, it's one of those things where we cannot see other people's faith. We can only feel and see our faith. So in terms of going with that, surrounding yourself daily and practicing the things and exercising it and feeding your faith um, daily as well uh, within your journey is faith is also a journey. Uh, that is um, that's what I would like to add with that. Mm -hmm. I think that the the most practical one of the most practical mental models that we can use in our daily experience is to use the sanctuary. And Ellen White says that the sanctuary opened to view a complete system of truth and also helps us to understand pardon for sin and power over sin. So so there was a daily service that took place. And I think that if we follow the the symbolic nature of the different aspects of the uh, the courtyard and the holy place every day um that's that would that will you know it, it will it will help us to experience righteousness by faith you come into the courtyard you you accept christ every day steps of christ said consecrate yourself to god in the morning make this your very first work uh, accept him as savior um, accept him as lord of your life you come to the labor you ask for cleansing for your sin um, then you go into the sanctuary, you, you ask for the Holy Spirit to fill you so that you can have the fruit of the Spirit, be, be a loving, a lovable Christian. Um, you spend time in prayer um, and, and uh, spend time in his word. And this was all part of the daily experience. And the goal is, is the most holy place. And without holiness, the Bible says, no one will see the Lord. And I think that the the weekly, you have the daily experience, and also in the Christian life, you have the, the weekly experience in that every seven days you experience the Sabbath, which is not only a memorial of creation, but according to Ezekiel, the Bible says that the Sabbath is, is an experience in which we rest in God, the, the acknowledgement that it is God who makes us holy. So it's beautiful. So every Sabbath you rest. You don't work. You rest in the experience that even though the ideal is is unattainable from a human perspective we rest in the reality that it is god who can make us holy mm -hmm. so every seventh day we it's an acknowledgement um by faith that that holiness that righteousness will will be will be a reality in our lives um and we rest in that reality by resting in God every seventh day. So you have the daily of the weekly, and then obviously the experience of, uh, and that carries us through the experience of the, uh, of the investigative judgment, and the close of probation. Mm. Um, if I could just add one, um, just one thing as well that just came to me um, off the back of what we were discussing earlier, it was just to say as well, when to check your motives. So sometimes I think if we look at ourselves and some of the things that we do and the decisions that we make, we do those things not because we've seen in scripture that that is something that we need to do, that we've been convicted. We sometimes do certain things because we think it's going to make us holier subconsciously. 
Um, and it's only when we kind of sit down and analyze that we realize actually there's no good reason for me doing that other than I feel this will make me holier. But again, that can be damaging to our experience of righteousness by faith because we're essentially trying to do it on our own and not really thinking about what we're doing. So I would just say in terms of the way you live your life and the choices that you make, analyze those choices and think to yourself, am I doing this because I, I recognize from God's word that this is something that I need to do and that something God has asked me to do or am I doing this because I think it will make me holier and it's a standard that I've set for myself or someone else has set for me in terms of what is meant to be holy rather than what God has said is holy. Um, and that can be very freeing because it allows you then to listen to the voice of God to make your decisions rather than living by the standards of men and using that as a way of deciding what you should and shouldn't do. Hmm. Appreciate that. Well, thank you guys for sharing your thoughts, your comments and your experiences with our, um, with each other and with our audience today. Um, I know it's a, it's a important subject. We could discuss it at greater length, but um, I believe we laid out some good um, principles and history and background and, and, and applications for those who are watching today. So thank you guys for being here. Thank you guys who are watching online for being with us this evening. And for those who watch um, later on on catch up, and we pray that you're blessed by what you see. And so we're just gonna close now with a word of prayer and uh, bring our discussion to a close. Um, David, do you mind praying for us as we close? Sure, sure. Father in heaven, we thank you for the righteousness of Christ. We thank you for the righteousness which is imputed and imparted to us by faith. We thank you that this is based not on the way that we feel, but on your word and who you are. And we pray that our experience would be grounded in the word of God and that you would help us to rest in you and the assurance that it is only God that can make us holy. We thank you for the gift and for the promise in Jesus' name. Amen.